Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. And the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. On a recent trip to London, I had the honor of interviewing several esteemed artists. The experience left me with a dizzying high as I listened to their stories. One of them was renowned visual artist, sculptor, poet, author, performance artist, filmmaker, and professor emeritus of fine art at Oxford, Brian Catling. He is an artist who walks down the dark side when approaching his projects. There is an element of outrage in his work that prods us to stand back and search a little deeper into our souls. When I researched his art, I I was at once a little terrified, but mightily stimulated. I look back on the day I contacted him as perhaps one of my most inspired pursuits. When I asked for the interview, I expected a heady intellectual with no real time for me, and what I got when I met him was a big bear of a man with a deep, enviable speaking voice, which easily coaxed me into his huge and magical world of artistic passion. He has huge, expressive hands, a shock of white hair, and he is not shy about professing his pride of being a working-class Cockney Londoner. A few minutes into our interview, I was overcome with pleasure on watching this wonderful artist exude unbridled joy in speaking about his life and art. It seemed to me that Brian Catling possessed the spirit of a small boy still discovering the vast delights of the world. The exuberance and warmth that exists in his eyes and his larger-than-life personality immediately tipped me off to the fact that he is a natural-born storyteller, whether it be in his writing or visual art. Born in 1948, he studied at the East London Polytechnic and later at the Royal Academy of Art. He was good at art, and suffering from dyslexia, it was his work that gave him a haven. He credits his nonconformist teachers as key to preserving his imagination so he could find his own voice as an artist. And in his own teaching, he doesn't like to disturb the artistic path of his students. In 2015, he was inducted into the Royal Academy of Art as a royal academician, a covetable position bestowed to eminent artists of our time. His popular sculpture commemorating the execution site at the Tower of London was unveiled in 2006. It consists of two engraved circles with a glass pillow at the center. He told me he wanted to give those who had perished in beheadings a soft pillow in their memory. He also wrote a poem surrounding the artwork with the names of those who had been executed on the site. His first novel, The Vore, has delighted readers and been critically acclaimed on both sides of the Atlantic. The book is a fantasy set in a mysterious forest which, as Brian Catling explains, is both sentient and magical, a place of demons and angels, of warriors and priests. He draws on characters both fictional and historical. This popular novel has inspired a trilogy, and it seems perfect that filmmaker and former Monty Python member Terry Gilliam is rumored to be turning the trilogy into a miniseries. Brian Catling pushes boundaries in art, and the effect can be startling and raw. 
But there is an inherent beauty in both the man and his work that defines the delicate side of his nature. I would call him a romantic hunter. We met on a Sunday morning at the Malthouse Pub in Fulham on the west side of London. Join us now for coffee and allow yourself to be drawn in to the world of Brian Catling. It's a thing they have. It's automatic at a certain age. Really? And yeah. so you've turned that golden age of, of like, 65? And, yeah, I'm and 60, 68 now. And, um, and they said, but they, but they asked me to stay on as emeritus professor, so I will keep my studio in a school and I will keep some, some association with it. Of I've been, been at the art school for 25 years. So it's, oh, my you know, gosh. Which seemed about, like, six, because <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. Because you loved it. <laughs> yeah. I read somewhere that you said teaching keeps you sane. Yes, that's right. Um, I think because I'm obsessed with my own imagination, I need something that, that takes me out of it, and that's dealing with other people's imagination. Because mm-hmm. I have a very strict principle that when I'm teaching, I don't, I don't talk about me or I don't allow my influence to actually uh, disturb somebody else's imagination. I use myself as a reflective surface mm-hmm. to bring them out, to bring them out. Because I've had a bit more experience of putting things together, I can change the, change the convex nature of that surface. So in the end, after they spoke to me, they don't remember I've been there. They just remember seeing their own idea float between uh, uh, their description and my description of the object act, especially when making sculpture. Hmm. How interesting. It's really interesting. It's really... And because people, you know, everyone has these vision, strong visual imagination. But it's generally been suppressed or it's been diluted or it's been put aside or they've been told at school, no, you don't do it like that, you do it like this. Exactly. Or you're my kind of man. I love this. I love this. Where did you go to school initially? I went to school in the, um, in the Old Kent Road, which is uh, South London. I... Um, like all English people you can tell from my accent I'm working class so it was a very poor part of town so you were uh, just a normal very very normal my parents I I, I was I was an adopted child so I was a foundling really but my my adopted parents were fantastic people they had no education they had hardly any money at all Mm -hmm. but they encouraged me brilliantly and they had kind of a wisdom and that's that's Love and uh, a wisdom like that—you can't, you can't beat it. So, right. so right, yeah, we love that kind of open learning, opening your mind yeah, to, to anything. That's fantastic. So they encouraged me without pushing. That's fantastic. Is, yeah, it is. It is, and I was very lucky. My God, I could, I could be picked by anybody out of the box. Apparently, the orphanage was like a kind of Charles. Uh, uh, Dickens place with uh, like rows of cots and so you go along and you pick one that one so it's like a dog's home <laughs> stray dogs so which puppy comes up to you exactly. and like exactly. the exactly I think oh my gosh. Yeah. how old were you when you were adopted nine up? months oh my gosh yeah. so you have little to no recollection of no none at all um, and I've never made the journey I never I never decided to find out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I suppose because my parents were so wonderful and because also 
a, a curiosity isn't enough to knock on someone's door and say, hey, guess who I am, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just like to leave it. That's lovely. Yeah, when, my, did, when did you first get into art then? What, what led your mind into this artistic and creative it was, world? It's what I was good at. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, I wasn't... I, I, it's now recognised as dyslexia. Um, you know, it didn't have that name in those days, but it's um, so I wasn't very good with words. Although I was reading, my writing was appalling. Um, still, is a bit rough. Um, but the visual thing was always something I could follow. I could always follow the next line in that, making things and making pictures, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and um, just encouraging imagination more and more because I really believe it grows. Oh, yes, it does. Mm. So here you are making things and drawing and, and poet. Everything is kind of bubbling in the back yep, of your mind. Yep, yep. So where did that lead you into your first university experience? Okay, so I went. I knew the only place I could go was art school. I knew enough about art school to know this was somewhere I think I could flourish. Mm-hmm. It turned out it wasn't that easy. Um, but I've, I... I didn't really understand the rules. I didn't really understand the way I had to do things. Um, I'm incredibly impatient. Um, uh, and and that, that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm, it is. For an artist, <laughs> it gets things you betcha. Done, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know, the things I do, if you take the, the, the writing, the performance, the making a sculpture, you put it in a box and you shake it and you empty it out, it should be filmmaking. That comes out, but filmmaking is, in those days was a long art. That's right. T- task. That's right. And I like to make things directly with my hands. I want to make the image. I want to make the thing there and now. So you kind of found your art by going through the forest of many things. You're yeah, a performance yeah. artist. You're a sculptor. You're a yeah. poet. You're a writer, and and visual artist. Which which came to the surface first? The visual. Mm-hmm. All, it, it, but my writing it is visual as well. I mean, I see it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. see what I'm going to chase, and then I, I describe it. Mm-hmm. So it's all visual. It's all. It's all. That's the that's the bit that glows in my head. It's the visual cortex. This is fantastic. Um, so talk to me about some of the materials you use in your visual art. Okay. Like the bow, the, the the wonderful bow I've seen, which actually hooks up with your book. Yeah, it more, does. Thank it? you yeah. very much. Um, it does. It's um, I'm looking for materials which, so I so a series of prime materials like steel and wood and perspex, plexiglass, um, but I, I I add to them and I want to change them, so I want to make them in ways that haven't been quite made like that before. Mm-hmm. So I want to change the flexibility of one material and let it cross to another. So one minute it's a piece of, it's a, it's a piece of forged steel that I've hammered with temperature and then turns into the same curve with a piece of plexiglass which I've glued together and mm-hmm. then very carefully heated to, to hold the same contour. So that's why I'm shaping and making things all the time. But I also look at materials for their associative presence, for their associative okay. uh, uh, m- uh, meaning. The kind of plexiglass I use is ivory, so it looks like ivory when you use it. People look at it and say, that can't be ivory. I said, no, it's not. Then they have no idea what it is. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. no idea what that material is, so they have to work for it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But it's also the mysterious. I mean, I'm fascinated by the mysterious. And... In a way, you know, the kind of thing I'm trying to get, the kind of atmospheres and, and 
there are nuances and enigmas I'm trying to get in sculpture are all the kind of things which exist in other forms much more sensible like, like music I mean I'm doing the most perverse way possible to take these inert materials mm-hmm. and forcing them to sing forcing them to to have a uh, to have a poetic I love that image yeah rather than going to a form which already has a poetic inside it, it mm-hmm. its own self mm-hmm. it's, um, so it's there's a sense of perversity in what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I sense that very much. In fact, when I started to really look into your work, I, I was at once almost terrified, yes. <laughs> overwhelmed, Good. Good. But, but always stimulated. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this kind of leads us in. We've, we've got to get to your book, uh, The, the yeah. Vor. Yeah. Yeah. The Vor. And, the, the, and, of course, this is a trilogy, and this is a, a real epic fantasy. Indeed. I mean, well... It, it, I had the opening sequence where a man is making a bow from the remains of his dead wife. The remains uh, of his dead uh, wife. Yeah, and so you think it's a uh, you think it's a scene of murder until you realise that she's this is what she wanted. She's told him to do this. Oh. She's demanded he makes this bow from her dead body. So she can still exist with him. You know, she becomes. It becomes. Um, Every time the bow is shot, it becomes a kind of way of seeing, seeing forwards or moving forwards. Oh my God! And um, so I had that in my head for like many years, and I got, to, I tried to write it past that, got to page three, stopped. And I'm not, I can't write prose. I can't write prose. And then I found this little wonderful little book by John Fuller called Fly to Nowhere. And it's only 150 pages, but it's a beautiful book. Come on, you can do that. You can do that. And then suddenly, once I got past page three, this, it never stopped. And this epic wow. thing came out. It finished, the first book finished with 500 pages. Oh my I was gosh. completely shocked. <laughs> I didn't know this was happening, and I thought, oh my God, I've done it, I've done it. And I walked away thinking, right, now I could celebrate. And then the next book appeared, almost instantly. So this is part of a trilogy yeah, that you yeah, planned out. Yeah. So just tell us... What what is this forest? What is this okay. world to you? With the the forest is called the Vore. That name is stolen from Raymond Roussel, the French, very eccentric French uh, 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 surrealist, mm-hmm. um, who called it. He, he names the forest. He never talks about the forest. He uses it as a, as a backdrop. He has no interest in that. So he talks about things that occurred in front of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, that's okay. Well, I'm, I can use that as the power to drive it forwards. I then find out that he stole it from Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Everything <laughs> leads to Poe with me. Everything. Really? Yeah. Totally underestimated. Wow. Um, this is um, a six degrees of separation here. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you include Roussel in your book yeah, as well. He's one of the characters. Yeah. Because he wasn't, he, you know, he, was, he wasn't the nicest of people, mm-hmm. um, but he was a genius in, in what he did and the way he saw things. Mm-hmm. But Poe named a landmass or a mountain called the Vur, which is spelled slight, slightly differently. But I, I, I think my, probably my biggest influence when I was young, and it never goes away, was Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. yeah. It's very strong. Oh, I think it is. There's a darkness in your work, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and and that sense of enigma and mystery. Uh, his you know, language. But he was he was brilliant. He was brilliant. The language is just mm-hmm. magnificent. Very underrated. You're oh, absolutely yeah, yeah. right, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's. I think it's about time that uh, 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 um, uh, uh, 
reoccurrence. People look at mm -hmm. those things differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, My gosh. So the four, we're going to kind of traverse our way through this fantasy. Yeah. And this is leading way to perhaps a, a film, um, a television That's series. That's the idea that it's going to. I mean, I've done, the, I've done all the work on it, really. So, mm -hmm. so whatever it turns into next is kind of secondary to me, but they've asked me to be part of it to, to, to advise and to work towards it. That's fantastic. Is this going to be your retirement? So you can yeah, finally think, you know, buy an island somewhere? That would be Nike. <laughs> <laughs> to have some money in my life would be a, an unusual condition. I've always worked for it, so it's never been, uh, it's never been plentiful. But, but you're, you're not uh, afraid of that? No, I'm not afraid. No, no, no. no I grew up with that. I, I have no fear of that at all. It's, That's what makes everything about you so visceral. I love this. So tell me, what is it really? Tell this yeah, American yeah, opera yeah, singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is it really like to be an Oxford Don? Well, I'm a kind of unusual one. For the first thing, I mean, I'm, there's people there from all over the world with different accents, but I'm still the only one with a London working class accent. <laughs> so I'm the only one that sounds like this. It's, it's a privilege. It's, um, it's, uh, Oxford is a kind place. It's a, it, it's a kind of island. It's like Cambridge. They're... they're it would be incredibly boring, like all small English towns are very boring, except it changes blood mm -hmm. all the time. It's new blood is coming through all the time. Different scholars are coming through, different students. Mm -hmm. So it has mm -hmm. this kind of energy. And it's been doing it for 500 years. And because it's, because it's like that, it has a kind of... It's got to have a kind of kindness about how it treats people. That's really interesting, a kindness. It's the so, softest place I've ever lived. I'm not naturally attracted to soft places. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But it's, I, when I left London, it was a decision to step outside of the art world and step outside of the chaos of London. I'm a Londoner born and bred, I always will be, but it's... Um, but to find a cave to work in. I never expected mm -hmm. to be... I expected to be there for three years, not 25. Hmm. But it was a perfect cave, and it still is in a way. So you feel safe there to be able to, yeah, yeah, to create. It's, 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 it's safe, but it's also stimulating. So it's not a. It's not a. Um, and I think that's why all, all academics like it so much because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's kind of built for that. That's its function. And do you do you you live in, in Oxford? Yeah. Do you still keep an apartment in London? No longer, but I come. I come up once a week, and I've got friends that I stay with. So it's. The people, people ask me, what's it like uh, living in Oxford? I say, I don't know, I just sleep and work there. <laughs> I'm a Londoner, born and bred, you know, it never goes away. Um, you talk about the chaos of London. Do you think that that's something that... I mean, I know, I know the chaos of all cities. You sure. know, we feel it in New York sure. City, of yeah, course. Yeah. But somehow, it, it's a chaos we need, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, I, I'm finding it... I didn't think about coming back. I come back every week, but the kind of London I love and loved is going. Mm. It's been, and money is eroding it. Like the East End of London was still, up to 20 years ago, you could still find alleyways and that you didn't want to go down and were dark and mysterious mm -hmm. and peculiar. Mm -hmm. Those are all more or less gone now. That's gone. And most of the docklands I knew when it was, was a working dock has gone. That's their luxury apartments. So it's changed into a kind of mm, mm, a metropolis like other metropolis. Mm -hmm. It's lost that. It's lost a bit of its grime, a little bit of its claw. Yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of stuff I like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not. I think you're right. 
I've noticed that this trip to London yeah. very much. I lived here for 20 years, yeah, yeah. from 77 to 97. Yeah. The differences now are extraordinary Absolutely. to me. Yeah. I mean, watching people jog by, yeah. and, oh, uh, yeah. running was something you didn't do. No, unless the police were chasing you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the Docklands yeah, weren't yeah. a Barclays Bank, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of stronghold, yeah, yeah. you know, there. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. So it's so, but it's all in my memory. I mean, amazingly, it's still there, and it comes to the surface when I start to to write. Yeah. I mean, I don't plan what I write. Mm-hmm. I sit down and write the next piece, and it just comes up. Wow. And I'm trying to explain this to people because it's not the way other people write prose. I think I think it's not that way because people talk about it being a problem and a struggle to write. But it's the opposite for me. I sit down thinking, where was I? Oh, yeah. And it begins. So you just went to that easy place where you just open a, a yeah. funnel? Yeah, yeah. And it... it I mean, it, I'm, I'm, I mean after, after I finished The Vore, the three books of The Vore, I then wrote a quartet of Wild West stories. I read about this. You're, <laughs> you're interested in Doc Holliday. Very much, very much, yeah, yeah. So am I. Oh, good, good. Why, why Doc Holliday? Why, why did well, that come Because he's, he's the... He's, he's, the, he's the different one to all of the other mm-hmm. people, all of those other people you read about. He's the one which, I mean, he's also a classic romantic poet who's going to yes. die of consumption. Yes, he's got, yes. So he should, he's got, he's like Byron or something, you know. I mean, it's the same, <laughs> it's the same kind of, you know, bad behaviour on his way out, you know, living life the way he sees it. But even more extraordinary is his partner, Big Nose Kate. When you start to go into that, that becomes, you start to see there's a driving force in that as well. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. Hungarian woman who sort of finds her way there in the middle of, I mean, those places were desolate. Those yes, wild west were. towns were really amazing. But I kind of, but again, I have these, they came as a series of images. So I, so I write what I see, and I, of course, I read things a lot, I read a lot of things. But it's like every wild west film I've ever seen was suddenly my library. But I wasn't going to write it the way I saw, the way I saw it mm-hmm, in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm starting again. Wow. It's so interesting how you highlight him as being a kind of Byron character. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of true. Oh, my gosh. How beautiful. Well, is, is this a folly for you? Are these things are going to be published? Uh, oh, no, no. It, I, well, I hope they're going to be published. My agent's working on that at the moment. The, 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 that's what's published next. I mean, I've written quite a lot of other things. They're all, they're all sitting waiting to, yeah. to be published. Uh, I'm just hoping I'm going to survive long enough to see, to, to get to, to the end. To see everything come to fruition, you can <laughs> buy that island. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so I always think that the art of the Western is very operatic. I think I think yeah. that the brushstroke for that is huge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and when we look at hits like Star Wars and yeah. Lord of the Rings, yeah. you know, you're yeah. really going into that same yeah. kind of Western kind of imagery. Absolutely, and that's what I wanted to steer clear of. You know, I wanted them to have the, to have to have the core of that, but not to have the same, not to have the same. I wanted it to be more intimate. Yeah. Okay. So when you're sitting with these people and you're with them, they do behave. You know, the fact that some of those townships, they were made with, most of the population didn't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. There were people from Norway, from China, from, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of English was a kind of kind of the working language, but not always, because people are speaking a Scottish and an Irish dialect that so no one could understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's this mix yeah. that is not, so, it, so I think it's before, it's before the big sweep of the yeah. American language, the big sweep of, 
the melting of, pot. Of, yeah, also of brave men on horseback. You know, I think it's just this people finding themselves together because they've escaped a pogrom somewhere or they've exactly. or, 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 or famine. They find themselves in this mining town. Yeah. I mean, which is going to run more severely and more savagely than probably the place they've come from. When you were writing the westerns, did you go out to places like Arizona and no, Mexico? No, no, I went afterwards. I did it all afterwards. I sat and I wrote... So it's, it's, a, it's a Cockney professor writing in Oxford. Right. Westerns. Westerns. Which, which I'm sure people with miracles think that's a kind of outrage, but I quite like that as well. <laughs> I kind of like that in you too. So you said earlier that sometimes when you find something successful, you, you like them to turn into an opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah, this works for you. Is yeah. this like a knee-jerk reaction from you? I think it probably is because I can't go. The other thing is I can't go back because when I finished the quartet of the Wild Westeries, I thought it'd be nice to write another one about something else. No, it wouldn't go. It's done. So I have to go to a different subject. Are you sure that Edgar Allan Poe isn't like speaking to you somewhere and you open the door and he <laughs> I mean, says, I think Well, that would be a wonderful idea. That'd be a wonderful <laughs> idea because, I mean, when I wrote, I described this way of writing, people say, Oh, is it channeling? So, yeah. no, 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 it's not channeling. It's not, it's not a psychic phenomenon. It's, yeah. it's the imagination and the fact, probably. That I never wrote prose till I'm 61. I may have been storing something. Oh, yeah, I think you probably were. Storing a kind of narrative language which I never used before. How interesting. I, can't, I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, get it. I get it. I think you have been. You, you've been doing this whole Renaissance thing of many arts. Yeah. Yeah, you have been storing, and now it's coming up it's, to the top. Because it comes out with a pressure, you know, it, it's, it, it's there. And uh, so what I did to, after that, I wrote something called Hollow. Um, which is kind of like a Wild West. So this is like, um, it's, it's set in kind of Bruegel paintings, but it's like oh, Sam yes. Peckinpah meets Bruegel. <laughs> <laughs> you just say Peckinpah to me and I'm in your camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, there you go. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Peckinpah meets Bruegel. I love yeah, this. But, they, but, the, <laughs> but the, these terrible men on horseback who are coming down this mountain, Spiral Mountain, which is actually... Um, um, the Tower of Babel covered in snow but they also speak uh, uh, King James English so it's all thee and thou so you've got got cowboys speaking King James English (laughs) coming down uh, uh, into a Bruegel painting what an image so I mean but and of course, then you elaborate on it, and you, the detail starts. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I see it, you see it, you know, <laughs> it's just like, what happens next? I don't know. <laughs> but then something's going to happen with those characters do, being there. And this wellspring just provides for you. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. It never stops. You're really an outsider. Yeah, I think so. I've always been a bit that way. Yeah, so I don't quite fit. How important is being an outsider in art? Um. If my teaching experience tells me it's not, that it's because if I believe that, then I wouldn't be able to teach. Um, I think hard work is more important than being an outsider. But I think sometimes, if you have this perverse thing and you have this obsessive thing together, mm-hmm. even if you're not an outsider for any other way, you make yourself that uh-huh. because you refuse to do it any other way. Right. So it's, a, it's a sort of stubborn thing. 
Join me for part two of this wonderful interview with Brian Catling on December 19th. His work and stories remind all of us that we can expand our imaginative world and find new magical forests of our own to discover. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.